Amen. Have a seat, everyone, and good morning. I'm here to introduce our speaker this morning. But first, I want to ask, how many of you are fans of the blues, blues music? Oh, oh, this is going to be great because the, the, the metaphorical backbone of the message you hear today is blues music. So wonderful. Um, Rustin Smith comes to speak with us. Uh, Rustin helped start Lakeland Community Church many years ago. We had an Ellie Holcomb concert recently, and then Rustin was part of the duo that opened for her. Uh, Rustin is pastor of Box Day Community in uh, uh, Belton, Missouri, and Rustin and I and Dan and all of Several of us pastors in the Kansas City area uh, get to meet together once a month for prayer and to support one another. Rustin was just um, supporting me this morning, even though we had this message. He had some time to help bail my soul out of the fire again. So thank you, Rustin. So he comes to share with us this morning um, a word. He's also a huge Star Wars fan. So good people. All right, let's welcome Rustin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this is my second time around here this morning, uh, but I just want to say the leaders and pastors here, real people, beautiful worship, moving liturgy. I mean, when Dan was leading us through that whole rise up church thing, I, this is my second time even, and I turned to my wife and I just said, damn, that's good. <laughs> And uh, that's my translation of hallelujah. I just wanted to, so nobody got up and left, so we're okay still. (laughs) I want to start like this. Y'all feeling that? Is that moving? Is it moving you? All right. It goes like this. I went to the crossroad, fell down on my knees. I went to the crossroad, fell down on my knees, asked the Lord above, have mercy. Now save poor Bob if you please. Guys, save poor Bob. Uh, he's at the crossroads and something is troubling him. He's on his knees. He's asking the Lord for mercy. Who is poor Bob? Poor Bob is the man that Eric Clapton called the most important blues singer that ever lived. Blues man by the name of Robert Leroy Johnson. Robert Johnson, the man, is shrouded by the mystery of time. We have only a couple photos of him. And 29 songs from two recording sessions. Poor Bob died on August 16th, 1938, at the age of 27, poisoned by a jealous man, allegedly. The first of what would later become the 27 Club, made up of all the musicians who also died at age 27, like Brian Jones and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison and Kurt Cobain and Amy Winehouse. That tragic ending led people to believe that Robert Johnson went down to those crossroads to negotiate a deal with the devil. It was kind of a Faustian reenactment where Robert would give his soul in exchange for success as a blues man. 
Like every other guitar player, I was once fascinated by that tale, but now I am older than Robert Johnson ever was, and I don't buy it anymore. (laughs) The lyric continues, standing at the crossroad, tried to flag a ride. Standing at the crossroad, tried to flag a ride. Didn't nobody seem to know me, babe? (laughs) Everybody passed me by. Robert Johnson was describing something that is not unique to Southern bluesmen in the 1930s. He's giving voice to something that each human person experiences, though not all of us ever become aware of it. I'm a church planner, so I know all about it. I've been abandoned by more people than the Titanic. But he presses further. You can run, you can run. Tell my friend Willie Brown. You can run, you can run. Tell my friend Willie Brown, that I got the crossroad blues this morning. Lord, babe, I'm sinking down. The crossroads for Robert Johnson are a crisis. They're a crisis of choices. When I'm going down a straight road, I don't have choices. I suppose I can keep going or I can turn around. That's about it. But at the crossroads, I can go left, I can go right, I can keep going. I have options, I have choices, and those choices have consequences. Which road I choose will place the future me in a drastically different circumstance. And so what does poor Bob do? Well, he tries to flag a ride. Like, is anybody else traveling this road? Can I just jump in with you? And the answer is, no. (laughs) No one even seemed to know me when I was faced with this vital choice. I'm all alone in this decision. Other people are no help to me at the crossroads. They can't decide for me. And so he reaches out to a trusted friend. Run and tell my friend Willie Brown that I'm in anguish. I'm sinking down. Why am I sinking down? Because inexplicably, through no fault of my own and an arbitrary turn of fate, I woke up this morning. Yeah? It is that classic fiat of the blues predicament. What happened to you, friend? Well, I woke up this morning. (laughs) That's what happened. I didn't do anything. I just woke up. I was going along fine yesterday, fell into a nice deep sleep, and then bam, I woke up this morning. And what did my waking up bring to me through no effort or desire of my own doing? The crossroad blues. I got the crossroad blues this morning. Now I'm on my knees. I'm all alone. Nobody understands me. I need just at least one trusted friend to know that I'm sinking down. Can Robert Johnson get an amen this morning? Yeah. Anybody here ever wake up with the crossroad blues? I think what Robert Johnson did at the crossroads was way more serious than some deal with the devil. I think he, like every single one of us, came awake one day. And usually it's not just a single day, but it's maybe three days or, or six or a dozen times when we wake up. Wake up, we get some glimpse of our options, of the roads laid out before us, the choices to go left or right or straight, and we get the feeling that the decision that we have to make is existentially weighty, that the person we will become is on the table, that the future we get to live into is up for grabs. Our very souls are at stake, and we also might find ourselves driven to our knees, if not in desperate prayer for God's mercy than for the withering weight of the choice itself or the burdens that we have carried too long. 
I don't think Robert Johnson met with some cartoon devil. I think something much more serious was happening in his soul. And to see that, you have to reimagine a character in the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament. He was not the original or the only blues man of the Bible, but he was one of the greatest, and he was a blues man called Jeremiah. Jeremiah was as dark-souled as any blues singer you have ever heard. Blues singers often have nicknames to accentuate the pain that gives them their street cred. There's Blind Willie Johnson and Howlin' Wolf and Lead Belly. What ailed them? Well, it's obvious with a blues man. How about Peg Leg Sam? It was a hoboing accident. Uh, Ramblin' Thomas. He ain't got no home. Iron and Board Sam. Too skinny. Barbecue Bob. Not skinny enough. Right? Jeremiah's blues nickname was the Weeping Prophet. What's the problem? He ain't nothing but a hound dog. He's crying all the time. Howling Jeremiah. He might have been called in 1930s America. And why was Jeremiah weeping? Because prophets, like blues men, give expression to the pain of the world. Because prophets, more than others, feel the falseness of the age. Weeping Jeremiah felt the falseness of his age, and he sought freedom for himself and his people. He came from a people that had some cultural remainders of a relationship with God. And Jeremiah heard the word of this God, and he passed on his own blues song with this word. Listen to weeping Jeremiah's blues in Jeremiah 6.16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. The Lord gives Jeremiah an insight about that angsty feeling with which we sometimes inexplicably wake up in the morning. It's a feeling called the crossroad blues. It's a sense that there are choices laid out before me. Uh, Our friend Craig Babb shared this with me like this. He said, one path is wide and paved. It's the six-lane superhighway. It's easy traveling. It's wonderful travel centers and refreshments. It's fast, efficient. It's where the cool kids are. It's where... I'd like to be. And then there is the ancient path, what the Lord also calls the good way. It's ancient, so it's probably not paved. Maybe it's gravel, perhaps cobblestone, probably more like a path than a road. It's narrow. Not a lot of cool kids travel it. It's inconvenient. There may be long stretches without a McDonald's or a Comfort Inn. The going is slow. The way is not as clearly marked or measured. Obviously, the ancient path in every way is going to be more difficult to travel. And what Jeremiah is announcing is the same thing that Robert Johnson came upon. It's the same thing that Jesus experienced when he went into the wilderness to meet Robert Johnson's fame-dealing devil. It's the same thing that happens to you and to me, and possibly just once in a long while, when you wake up on a certain unremarkable day. And you get this gut-level feeling that the next step you take could define a large portion of your one and only human life. 
perhaps it just occurs to you as a thought, like, is this what my life is? Is this the person uh, I dreamed of being when I was a child? Is there more to life than this? What does a, a really good life even look like? Is it what my neighbors are doing? Is it what the life my parents lived? It, who is really well off? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? And these passing moments, the, these short glimpses of major consequence for your life, you don't, you don't get that many of them. Of course, there are the big visible ones, like which college you attend or which person to marry or which career to pursue. But equally, if not more defining, are the interior choices. What kind of person am I becoming? Will I forgive or cling to bitterness? Will I keep running or will I ever stop to consider my life? At the core of all these questions that come to us when we wake up with the crossroad blues we find ourselves with decisions to make. It's one of the deepest choices that we all have to make. It's a question at the heart of all great spiritual traditions. It's the question of what do we do with our pain? All great spirituality is about what we do with our pain. When we go down to the crossroads, it's almost entirely about the fact that we have some kind of unresolved pain, some nagging tension, and we have to make a decision about what we're going to do about it. When Jesus went into the desert, a kind of crossroads, he placed himself in the way of pain. And that pain presented him these three classic choices about what he could do with the pain. He could seek power, control, or gratification, comfort, or celebrity, influence. Those are some of the paths available that we can seek at the crossroads. But each of us, from time to time, we awaken to the reality that we too have accumulated a certain amount of pain and we have to do something with our pain. What do we do with our pain? Well, we almost always try to twist it to serve our interests in some way. Above all, uh, we do all that we can to keep up appearances and to not let other people see our weakness. There's an author called Brant, Brant Hansen who says this happens because we, he, he thinks it happens because we are a culture of half-stories. We tell half stories. We're, we're accustomed to stories that end, with a neat, that end with a neat bow tied on them, wrapped up nicely in a tidy package. Something like, I was broken, I found Jesus, now I'm healthy. See how God works? <laughs> you know, see how God works all things together for good and everything works out neatly in the end? Yeah, but in reality, <laughs> in this life, there's not an end. There's no finish line in our ongoing lives. There is no place where you can say, well, and now I have arrived, right? Not in raising your kids, not in your marriage, not in your work life. We are each forever inside a story that is to be continued. In this life, there is no final verdict, but only a next step on a longer journey. I have a friend who refuses to read biographies of people who are still alive for this reason. He says there's still time for them to screw up whatever good they've done so far. Hanson writes, quote, anyone who's been around American churches is used to the, and that's when she found the Lord stories. But they don't often include, but yeah, she's still battling addictions like the rest of us. See, it's a blessing in in church whenever we get to tell the, look at what our awesome church is doing stories. I love to be able to tell those. We don't tend to give as much space for the messy follow-up details of those stories 
I mean, I could fill six months of sermons telling you about all the deeply sad near misses with people over the years, the people who almost got better, almost encountered grace, almost got free from the grip of consumerism or individualism and so on. But if I actually did that, my people would leave and go find a happier church. So, and some of them do anyway. But those, those messy stories, guys, in ourselves and in others, is actually where, we, where most of our lives are lived, right? Our almost stories, those oops, I messed up again stories, those are the real terrain of where God and we ourselves contend for our souls. But that's uncomfortable to say, and so we naturally like to clean up our stories, and we act like they're finished, and then we clean up ourselves, and we act like we're finished. And the act itself is a way of perpetuating our own hurt, and it's a way that we actually continue to hurt others, because a half-truth is a whole lie. And anyone who says that they have fully arrived is peddling an illusion, and so that's part of the problem is that we present a false image of ourselves to others. We, we project a lie that actually hurts others. But at the same time, we probably, uh, more dangerously, uh, we, we spin false stories about our wounds to ourselves. Like, here's what I mean. We are constantly spinning stories in our heads. Uh, our internal narration of what's happening around us and why it's happening. Stories are essential to us as humans. We're designed that way. They are a gift from God. Stories are how we make meaning, especially out of pain. Here's a small problem. Our stories are hardly ever true. <laughs> it's a scary thing to ponder. We, we tend to not have the ability to interpret what we see accurately. Uh, so someone said, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. There are psychologists um, who say that The number one kind of narrative that we most commonly spin to make sense of what we experience, the number one story we tend to tell ourselves, it's a defensive story. It's a a story we use to tell ourselves that we are right and the other person is wrong, right? It's a self-preserving story that says, this is not my fault. I just sounded like Han Solo, didn't I? Just for a second? No? Um, It's not my fault. I've been victimized. Now, most of the time, and hear me, not always. Not always, but most of the time, those stories, those defensive stories, don't hold up well. They're not entirely true. They're tissue paper stories. They're flimsy. They're thin they, because they don't account for reality. And so whenever you have this impulse to, to defend yourself, your position, it's just a red flag that you're telling yourself a story that's probably not totally true. In fact, we, we tend to rehearse our defensive stories over and over when we're laying in bed at night. They pop into our heads in the shower or while washing dishes and mowing the lawn. We, we, we tend to rehearse those stories over and over because they're so flimsy and they need reinforcing to even exist. And it's a clue that they're not robust enough to describe a fuller reality. You don't have to keep reinforcing true stories. Like no one lays in bed at night and says, I believe in gravity. I know it's real. I swear. I feel it. Right? Because you know it's true. It, you don't rehearse it. But when our flimsy stories, our defensive stories, eventually fail, and they often do, we don't immediately fall into something more true. <laughs> we tend to fall into the second most common story that we all sit, uh, spin to make 
sense of our experience. And it's not about defending or justifying ourselves. It's about failure and inadequacy. In other words, the, the story I default to when defensiveness won't work, like when I know there's no excuse, then I just say, well, the reason I'm in pain or the reason I'm not healthy is because I, I probably deserve it. Right? I'm a failure. I, I'm worthless. I, I'm inadequate as a person. I mean, sure enough, uh, that's what psychologists say, but sure enough, I, when, when I know I can't defend myself, I will immediately go, well, it's probably my fault. I mean, I always do this. I mess things up. And in my head, and I'm just talking about me, not you, wink, wink, right? I, I'm, guys, I'm painfully aware of my failures. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it's the old Jackson Brown lyric, Please don't confront me with my failures. I had not forgotten them. We, we don't forget our disappointments and our shortcomings and our inadequacies. But then in my head, according to how I look out from behind these eyes and how I see the world, other people don't seem to be saddled with self-doubt like I am. Other people don't... don't don't seem to be confused. Other people seem to know exactly what they're doing. Other people don't have such massive missteps in their lives. And with that comes this four-letter word, fear. It's fear that I might be found out. And so I better pretend, pretend that I belong by playing along with what everyone else is doing. It's, this is our constant comparison to our neighbor and trying to live up to the image that they're presenting, all the while knowing that the striving to keep up is withering our own soul. Oscar Wilde said it painfully. He said, most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions. Their lives a mimicry. Their passions a quotation. See, we are all told to want full schedules, upward mobility, the upgraded phone, the next car payment, the next sports league for our kids, the right school, the bigger house, the better neighborhood, the next experience or product that we can't live without. And There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. Any of those could be a holy pursuit. But it's all advertising to us a life that most of us never stop for a full minute to ask, is that truly a flourishing life? Like to keep working and acquiring and running? Is this, in our short years together, how we want to do life and connect with the ones we love? And yet we swallow it, and we all step up and we play our part because we think that's what healthy people do. This is the life of those uh, who have it together. This is what they achieve. This is how those who are blessed live. And if we don't keep up, then someone's going to know how we struggle and we're going to be found out. There's a name for this. It's called the imposter syndrome. Carl Richards wrote about it in the New York Times. He said that people who are seemingly competent and motivated and intelligent are often afraid they'll be found out as phonies. And sure enough, I came across this quote from celebrated and by all accounts wildly successful author Maya Angelou, who once wrote, I have written 11 books, but each time I think, uh-oh, they're going to find out now. I've run a game on everybody, and they're going to find me out. <laughs> and perhaps this is not what, just what we do with one another. Perhaps this is a pattern we have in how we also relate with God, afraid of being found out by God. I mean, 
Who wants to pray when we feel like we're faking it? Who wants to pray when we're spinning our stories, either A, how we've already got it right and we don't need anybody to tell us anything, right? Or B, how I'm a total fraud and not even God wants to be around me. (laughs) I'd rather just hide. King David wrote gut-wrenchingly honest songs about this impulse in each of us to resist and hide from God. He, He sang in these words in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. And so in reality, we can't hide. (laughs) But we all try. I suspect many people walk away from God entirely because of the desire to avoid pain or shame or wounds, hurts, failures. And then we just buttress our walking away with cheap intellectual scaffolding as we go. Like, well, maybe those people don't really care about me at the church. Or maybe there is no God. But then there is the ancient path. The humble way. Jesus said it would include some loss. Some pain. In Luke 17, Jesus said, Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life will preserve it. He said this in the context of the story of Lot and his wife hightailing it out of Sodom while God's destroying the city with judgment for their mistreatment of outsiders. And God instructs them not to look back as they're leaving, but Lot's wife looks back. And the implication is that she not only looks back, but that she longs to go back, right? Like half of her heart is in Havana, right? (laughs) Or Sodom, as it were. And she doesn't make it out. And she was at the crossroads, and she could not make herself want to go the hard path that led to life. This is a story that brings up for us the same kinds of choices that we all have in life. Is what we have always done working for us? Shall we continue with the same habits and same people and same job and same, same? Is it really working? Um, I saw this online. Someone asked, is anyone else going through life like, yeah, I just got to get past this difficult week and then it's smooth sailing from there, but like every week? (laughs) Yeah, it's another just great Jackson Brown line where he laments, I look around at the friends I used to look to to pull me through. Looking into their eyes, I see they're running too. Running on the superhighway, the easy road, same way everyone else is going. They're running just like I'm running. They can't help me. No, I've got to go down to the crossroads and stand alone. And decide for me. Will I ask for the ancient path, the good way that leads to rest for my soul? Or will I keep chasing the shiny, newer, bigger, better, faster, more, all those reinforcements of my small, false self? You can do that. But you don't have to. And you can start today. You can decide that you're going to walk the ancient path. You can decide to begin to choose the things that, even though they are hard now, will lead to rest for your soul. 
the first step is deciding if you want to keep burnishing your surfaces and keeping up appearances, or do you have the courage to sing your blues, to name your ache, to admit your restlessness, to acknowledge your hunger? As how do we deal with the world that has hurt us, that has wounded us? Especially those of us who have been wronged in ways that are so wrong that they could never be made right in this life. What defense do we have against such injustice and abuse? What can we do? We can tell the truth. We can tell the truth to ourselves to God, to others. And when we are ready to tell the truth, we are ready to enter the kingdom that Jesus has come to give us. When we tell the truth, we have already put a foot down on the ancient path and we are on the way that leads to rest. Amen. Um, We have been celebrating for the last year folks who invite other folks into the community of Christ. And we celebrate how God uses us when we give an invitation to someone. And this morning we have a really special one. So Jane Monroe would like to thank the person that invited her family to Lakeland. And it is Sydney Belt, who's home from college. So let's welcome Jane and Sydney. Hi. Well, it all started in the fall of 2004. My daughter, Callie, had just started kindergarten, and she was making friends with this little girl named Sydney, Sydney Belt. Both girls invited their grandparents to school that fall for something called goodies for grandparents. And from across the room, Sydney's grandma And my dad's wife recognized each other as neighbors in Overland Park. So what are the chances, right? How weird. After that, Crystal's mom, who was the grandma, began to encourage Crystal to call me and reach out and make a friend. And, you know, she's being a mom. She's just trying to be helpful. And, and Crystal resisted just as I would have in the same instance, but her mom was steadfast and was hounding, I think, after some time, and so finally Crystal's like, fine, I'll call her. So she called me, and immediately she um, apologized for the awkward conversation and assured me that her mother made her call. But the upshot was, you know, my daughter is making friends with your daughter, and you have more kids, I hear, and I've got more kids, and do you want to be friends? And so a friendship began, two stay-at-home moms who really truthfully needed each other for our own sanity, because we began to trade mom's mornings out. So I would take care of her two preschoolers on a morning. She would take care of mine on another morning. And Max and, J- or Max and Ryan are the same age, and Sophia and JT are the same age. So it was really, it was perfect. So fast forward to 2007. 
only my sister knew that our marriage was a complete mess. Russ and I had entered counseling, and we were deciding, are we going to take the ancient path and do the hard work, or are we just going to call it quits? And we were hurting. Yeah, we were hurting. So it was about that time that Callie got a call from Sydney, and Sydney said, hey, do you want to go to church with me? And Sydney, or Callie came to me and asked, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, you do. You want to go to church. So we, we had given up on finding a church. We'd looked years before. Um, Russ was raised Pentecostal. I'm raised Methodist when it was convenient. And um, we'd both been kind of burnt by people who said they were Christians and, and were judgmental in ways that didn't make sense to us. So when finding a church was hard, we just, we just quit looking. But meanwhile, the Belt family shows up in our driveway. They collect Callie, take her here to Lakeland, bring her back home, and Callie's reviews were excellent. It was like five out of five stars. <laughs> she had a great time. So that happened for a couple of weeks, and then um, Melody says, Melody's older than Callie, came to me and said, well, that's not right, Mom. Callie's off there having fun without me, and I'm pretty much tired of it, so I want to go. And I checked in with Crystal and Charlie, and they said, yeah, send her. We'll take her. Well, enter Max, who says, well, that's not fair. I want to go. So Russ and I kind of looked at each other and said, well, I guess we're going to have to grow up and go to church because the Belt family van is full. (laughs) So we're going to have to do that. Okay. So we came and I will tell you that it was scary. We hurt and continued to hurt, and we're trying to find our way out of it. And what happened when we came here was we didn't find judgment. We found love. We found acceptance. And we found just a great community of people. And we found friends. So who knew we had just recently made friends outside of Lakeland with Scott and Jackie Patton over wine. But that's a whole different story. And there they were, and a familiar face was great. And then a few weeks later, Christina McCrary tracked me down and said, Janie, is that you? Well, in high school, she was Tina, and we used to carpool together, and I was Janie. And here we are a lot of years later, and yeah, it was great. It began to feel less scary and more like home. And so now, 11 years later... Russ and I cannot imagine life without each other or you guys. So what I recognize now, sorry, waterproof mascara, thank you, Lord, (laughs) is that God was at work to equip us to save our marriage years before we even knew we were in trouble. And so to eight-year-old Sydney Belt... I would like to say thank you for inviting eight-year-old Callie Monroe to church one morning, because you really did make all the difference. Let us stand together and say this blessing over one another that is so true. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. 
May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.